O leaders of the apostles and teachers of the world, intercede with the Master of all, that he may grant peace unto the world and to our souls his great mercy. Amen. Okay, well, welcome everyone once again to our uh, Bible study. Uh, today is a beautiful day. We just had the liturgy uh, next door for St. Herman of Alaska, who we remember today who is the first American saint. And then also in the Orthodox news a few weeks ago, the most recent American saint was canonized, St. Olga, also of Alaska, who was a priest wife who ministered to many of the people there, just like St. Herman. Both of them are incredible saints um, of the church. And we also remember St. Lucy uh, today, Santa Lucia, as it's known, so we have some uh, Santa Lucia buns uh, here to celebrate. Um, just before we started, Nicole, you had the question of uh, a feast that we just celebrated in the church. So let, let's let's go to your question of that. <laughs> well, it's it's a so on Saturday we celebrated the feast of the conception of the Mother of God, and um, that's one that. Uh, we had liturgy on that day, and, and after liturgy, I was explaining that we do look at it differently than the Catholic Church looks at it. And I, I think the difference is important. Um, and, <clears throat> and, and your question is related to another the discussion we were having a few minutes ago, which uh, on, on the providence of God and the idea of the mother of God who said yes to the angel when the angel came and uh, spoke to her. In the church, we understand that the mother of God, and, and a key part of our understanding about the mother of God, is that she is just like one of us. That she's a human being just like one of us. And that her saying yes to Christ, which was a question that was asked, and that she could have said no to in theory. And that was what we were discussing earlier. And I'd love to, as we ponder human free will, uh, we know that the mother of God in that moment, being asked and being told this plan of God, in other words, God's plan is for you to conceive the child by the Holy Spirit. And the mother of God says, be it done unto me according to your word at the Feast of the Annunciation that we celebrate on March 25th. Um, and we recognize that that was a moment when the Mother of God was asked a question, in a way, asked a question and given the, res given the chance to respond on behalf of the human race, to say yes to God. God did not force her to do it. God knew what was happening. God knew she would say yes, I guess you could say, that's a tricky question that we can uh, <laughs> unpack. <clears throat> um, but God uh, gave her that choice in that moment to choose him, um, to choose to align her will with God's will. Um, and that moment is something that in a fractal way, in other words, that's a large moment for all of humanity. But each one of us are many times throughout even every day given the chance to say yes to God, 
In other words, to align our will with God's will, to do his will. Whether it's a simple thing like choosing not to respond in a negative way to someone or choosing to do something good uh, and generous to another person. Um, All those little choices that we make are opportunities like the mother of God to say yes to God, to align our will with God's will. And she did say yes, and we're grateful. But the, a key point, and, and the point of, of talking about this, is in terms of the feast of the conception of the mother of God. We understand that she was conceived as any other child by a mother and a father who were uh, told by an angel uh, beforehand that they would conceive a child, and they were past the age of having children. So it was a, a miracle in that way. But only in that way. Everything else was natural, you could say, and, and normal. And, and that's important because the mother of God then is one of us that was born into the world like the rest of us, that um, was uh, raised in, in a holy way. But she's completely human like us with that free will um, and like one of us fallen in that way, inheriting the human nature that had been separated from God. Um, In the Catholic Church, it's a little bit different. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was introduced, I think, in the last 200 years. It may have been in the 1800s, I think, that it came in. I could be mistaken there, but Eddie's nodding his head, so that's a good sign. Uh, It was introduced as a way... Um, to elevate the mother of God, but really it doesn't elevate her as I look at it because with the immaculate conception, they, they say that it's not just a normal conception, it's immaculate conception. So somehow, and I don't know the, the specifics of it, that she was conceived in a way that's more like Christ was conceived by a miracle, by the, you know, Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit forming the Christ child as a as a infant in the or not even infant as a uh, as an embryo you could say in the womb of the mother of god so somehow the mother of god was also conceived in this way in a way that was sinless and did not uh, have the fall involved didn't inherit the fallen nature this is something that I, I don't know. I know there, there's a lot of theology that in, involves original sin and, and, and things like that that we also don't share. We understand that um, all humanity, including the mother of God, were born into, a, before Christ, were born into reality of separation from God. And it's the choice of the mother of God representing all of humanity that says yes and once again, through the incarnation, God and humanity are reunited. So the mother of God's one of us and not something special, not something different. Um, so that's uh, basically, I don't know, does that, does that does. answer? It did. You, you reminded me of the original sin because the question that Eleni asked me was something to do with that she was born without sin. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, and I, I don't, I'm not a theologian by any means, but... In my understanding, when we say original sin, we would say, or the Catholics say original sin. Um, in my layman, in terms of theology, a way of understanding that, that is that, you know, that, that the humanity like inherits the guilt of Adam. We would say that, 
that humanity inherits the consequences of Adam's decision, which is separation from God, in, in the most concise way to say it, that what all of humanity had, this, this fallen human existence, was separation from God, not a guilt or a you know, penalty in that kind of judicial way, um, but that that original sin, in a way, is, is healed by the Incarnation, by those that align themselves with Christ because he is God and man. We're reunited with, with God. So the mother of God, we would say, was subject to all what all of humanity at that time was, which was separation from God, but she undoes it. Yeah. But so. On the other hand, we do say that she did not sin in her life. Right? Or is that... Yeah, yeah, I hear, I've heard different ways of expressing the mother of God's life. One way I've, I've heard it said is, at the conception of Christ, she is somehow sanctified by that uh, conception. So, yeah, so that was a feast we celebrated on, on Saturday. Um, and uh, it's a, a wonderful feast of the, the church when we remember the mother of God. And then, as you know, nine months later on September 8th is when we celebrate her birth. So her conception is December 9th and her birth is uh, September 8th, which is nine months uh, minus one day. St. John the Baptist, the, di- the difference in time between his, the conception of the forerunner, which we celebrate, uh, blanking on the date, and then his nativity is nine months plus one day. Now, Christ, we celebrate his conception. In other words, uh, what would that be called? The Annunciation. When the Mother of God said yes, we celebrate that on what day? March 25th. And then we celebrate his birth on December 25th, nine months exactly, if you will, 25 to 25, where the Mother of God is the ninth to the eighth. So it's off by one. So Christ is exactly nine months, if you will. Just a small little thing in the Orthodox calendar that that uh, only Christ gets a nine-month perfect. <laughs> uh, so there you go. All right. Um, so those are some of the things uh, happening. And, and as you know, the big thing happening at this time of year is our preparation for the birth of the Lord on uh, December 25th. So we're just two weeks uh, before that uh, uh, wonderful feast of the Nativity. Um, so here we are in 1 Corinthians. Um, we are on chapter 4. Um, we've made it through the first part of chapter 4. We're on verse 6, if I'm not mistaken, of chapter 4. So maybe if somebody wants to read, um, excuse me, verse 6 and 7, and then we can talk about that. Uh, Eddie, do you want to? You have a version there. Now these things, brethren, I figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Wonderful. So this is coming in the context of um, humbling the Corinthians a little bit who are very proud in having all of these gifts and spiritual gifts and material things. And they're very proud of that. And St. Paul, um, at the end of chapter 3, 
he also spoke on this similar theme of saying that everything is yours, uh, whether of life or of death, things present or things to come, all are yours, which is kind of what they want to hear. And then he had that twist where he said, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So you possess everything is, is a, a theme he comes back to. You have everything you need. Um, all things are yours because you are Christ's and because Christ has uh, all dominion over heaven and earth. Therefore, when you are with him, you have everything as well. So why would you seek for anything other than, uh, than Christ? Um, so he's talking also, at, then he, he begins chapter 4, as we talked about last time, talking about the role of the apostles, that Paul and Apollos and all the different leaders of the church, um, about whom they're having different factions and aligning themselves with different ones, that all of them are simply servants. That the things that they have to offer as apostles are not theirs either. All of their ministry is God's ministry. Everything uh, points to Christ. And St. Paul then is not accountable or responsible to the church in terms of them judging him for this or that. God is his judge. God is the one that entrusted him with this ministry and God will uh, judge him. Um, and uh, so he says, what makes you different from one another? And the answer obviously is nothing makes you different from one another. Um, we love to be individualistic in our society and to make ourselves individuals that are isolated from other people. And we like to think of ourselves and if you think about how do you identify yourself, what, what is your identity? You know, if you, if, you, if you take a minute to think about where your identity lies, what are the things that define you as a person, you would maybe think of, well, I have short hair <laughs> and I love to sing or I'm good at working at cars, working on cars or I'm liked by all my friends, or I write with very good handwriting, or all these little things that kind of give you uh, pride in your personality and who you are, right? You can, I'm sure you can think of a few for each person. Hi, Tisa. Uh, we're in the middle of the Bible study, but uh, Sh Shannon can um, uh, check in with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so all those things are things that we um, think of when we think of ourselves. They give us identity and meaning as our, our uh, personality. Um, and often the reality of, of life, of um, what we experience, is that sometimes those things are stripped away from us for one reason or another. We may lose our job. We may lose a loved one. Um, you know, are all our skills or things like that. All these things, St. Paul is telling us, are all, all gifts from God. And when we use them and, and form our identity around them, then when they get taken away, it really hurts. Um, so this is what he's kind of referring to, that our identity shouldn't be so much in these gifts that we've been given, um, but in Christ, um, and that's why he's asking that question. 
what makes you different from one another? I mean, there's gifts that you've been given. Everyone's been given different talents and different resources and different gifts. Those are gifts, but they don't define who you are, or they shouldn't define who you are, which should define our, our core identity is Christ. Um, and that's what's causing these divisions, or causes any division, you could say, is when we make the gifts that we've been given our own, and we hoard them, and we uh, make our identity around them. So he's saying, what, what do you have? That you ha- what makes you different from one another? Uh, nothing, because we are all cre- created by God and given different gifts. Uh, and that's, that's a big thought to, to ponder and think about. Um, and he goes on and he keeps explaining that. What do you have that you did not receive? All those things that you have are gifts. They're not um, things that you own or that you possess or that you have uh, control of. You don't have ownership over anything in your life, in a way. Everything is subject to being taken away, even health, right? You look at Job as an example of this, right? Job has everything everything. He's got, you know, good land, lots of cattle. He's rich. He's famous. He's got tons of friends. The friends of Job are are very uh, fun kind of peanut gallery in the book of Job. Because as Job, as you know about the story of Job, the the devil, and this is a fascinating thing that that, uh, should kind of puzzle us in a good way about God and even some of those questions of like human free will versus God's relationship to us, it should puzzle us. Because in the story of Job, in, in the book of Job, Job is this very successful, rich, famous, likable person. He has all these things. And um, it says that the devil comes into the divine presence, into the divine court, and stands in the court of, of God and says, you know, God, look at Job. He's so rich and famous and, you know, likable and all these things. But do you think he actually loves you? That's kind of what the devil asks. And the devil says, I don't think he really loves you. So let me, allow me to go and and make trouble for him. And then we'll see if he likes you or not. It's a very funny conversation. Again, and this is something that is put in human terms, so you can't think too literally about it, but God says, yes, go ahead, and you'll see that my, I know his heart. I know his heart that he loves me, and this will you know, prove it. And so the devil goes and begins to uh, do all these things. All these things happen to Job. He loses everything he has, and those, that peanut gallery of his friends start mocking him and saying, how can you believe in God? Because through it all, Job is saying, you know, though he kill me, I will not forsake him. Though he take everything away, I will not forsake him. I love him and my trust is in him, regardless of all this stuff. And so the friends start mocking him. How can you believe uh, God? How can you trust God? Why do you still pray to a God that allowed all this to happen to you? Um, and so you see everything gets taken away and Job remains faithful to God. Um, and that's what Paul is saying in, in a way here. 
what you have that you did not receive. Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So Job is one that didn't boast, that didn't think of all these things as his. His heart was true with, with God. And when they were all taken away, he stayed firm as a person. That's, that's, so we, we know the patience of Job, but you know, that's, Job's known for patience. It's almost more than patience. It's the quality of patience that also has the hope that God is still there and that God still loves me and that God is still with me even though I'm in a dark time, in a dark place. It's, it's a patience with, with a hopeful quality as well, that, that I will stay true to him no matter what. And that's, that's a huge thing. And, and so in, in Job is, is really the story of the test of someone who everything was stripped away and was true through it all, that stood and shone brightly and his building uh, stood, if you will, like we heard earlier in chapter 3, that in the day of trial, he stood firm. And the, and the end of Job, too, and this again relates to that discussion that we've been having over the last few meetings of our different groups, uh, because at our mom's group a few, few days ago, that question of what if the mother of God had said no, what would have happened? This, this is the question of human free will and, and all that. This uh, uh, came up, and you know that that's a a fascinating thing, of of knowing where where is God in difficult times? Where is God in 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 our everyday life? Where is God in how does He know the future and yet gives us freedom? How does that work? How does God? choose, you know, some people are rich, some people are not, some people suffer more, some people suffer less, all these different things. At the end of the book of Job, there's a fascinating kind of conversation that Job has with God. And he basically starts to ask questions of God, and God gives him the answer and says, Job, were you there when I created the stars? And Job like, obviously not. Were you there when I would put the world into order? Were you there when your great-great-great-grandparents were alive, right? Do you know how big the world is? Do you know why this happens or that happens in the world? And Job is like, no. And the Lord says, don't worry, I'm in control. Let me take care of my things. You take care of your things and following my orders, my precepts, my commandments, the, my way of life. Follow the way of life toward me, no matter what happens, and let the big questions be with me. And it's, it's a really uh, powerful thing that no matter what happens in Job's life, that's what happens. He stays true to God. And that's kind of where we falter often. We become so anxious about the future because we're so attached to the things of the present. We're so attached to all these gifts that God has given us that we become anxious when we think about the future. But that anxiety stems from the fact that we think of them as our things and that we uh, have them and therefore we could lose them. But the fact that we lose them tells us they're not really ours. They were given to us. 
If they were truly our possession, we wouldn't worry. But deep down inside, we know that the things inside of us and the things that we have are not truly in our control. Our health, for instance, is not truly in our control. So we become anxious because we know that it's not deep down inside. So instead of becoming anxious and giving in to anxiety, we should be like Job saying, my identity is not in God. These are gifts that have, or these are gifts that have been given. My identity should not be in all these great things, but in, in God. Our focus and thankfulness is a big part of this, to be grateful for the things that we have, to enumerate even the very smallest things that we have in life and recognize them as gifts from God. That's a, that's a, a big, a big uh, thing to say from just these two verses, but it's something that, that I think St. Paul wants us to hear, that wanted the Corinthians to hear, and wants us all to hear, is to become less attached to this world, uh, less identified with this world, and more identified with the world to come, with those things. The things that we should take pride in as our possessions is what? What things endure beyond this world? Love. Christ, right? The virtues that we have. Those are the things that make up that building that Paul talks about in chapter 3. Those are the things that make up the firm building. The love we have for each other. The charity, the, the patience, um, the perseverance, the humility. Those things cannot be taken away from us, right? Our health, our, our money, whatever. Those are only given to us to, so we can be thankful and we can focus on the growth of the virtues. Um, so those are the things um, that, uh, that St. Paul is, is telling us and telling the Corinthians. And then he, he keeps going after this. Um, he, he, he keeps crescendoing, if you will. You say, you are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. So he's going to do something here. So if you read that, you have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I wish you did reign, that we may also reign with you. What's, what's happening in the next part is very interesting. St. Paul is telling them, you have everything. You are already full. You're already rich, right? You have everything in Christ. You are kings in Christ, right? He's going to make a very subtle uh, change here. And he's going to start uh, giving them a hard time. He's putting on his sarcastic voice here. Because then he says, And indeed, I wish you did reign that we may also reign with you. So he's basically saying subtly in here that you're kind of acting like this without... Uh, they're acting like they're rich. They're acting that they're kings so that we may also reign with you part, right? Those few words there. He's basically saying, you know, you're, you're acting like that. You're so proud and puffed up with all your possessions. You know, I wish you actually did reign so we can reign with you. So there's a little sarcasm there. Um, and then the, the next part that he goes into is because, again, they love to hear about how good they are and how this gospel, they, they would love to hear certain pastors that are in the prosperity gospel. 
that you're going to get all these things. You're going to be rich and famous and all this. And some uh, Christian preachers preach that way, this, this prosperity gospel. They would love that. So he's kind of building up what they are. You are full. You are rich in Christ. And then with a little sarcasm, he then launches into flipping it upside down. So he puffs them up. And in case they lost the message that it's Christ that makes them full and rich, because reading this, you say, you are full, you are rich. They're like, yay for us. We're great. We're prosperity kind of gospel. But then, you know, at the end of chapter three, like you said, this is Christ. So he's going to turn it on its head. Like everything about Christ turns things on its head. And this is an example because he launches into a long passage that talks about the opposite of fullness, the opposite of riches, right? Because again, they're getting distracted by the external riches, the external glory. And he's saying, no, this is the glory of Christ. This is the riches of Christ. These are the virtues. This is everything that Christ has. You have it if you have Christ. But often what it looks like to be a Christian is not full and rich, right? And that's the upside down part, that you have these things in Christ, and yet it does not appear like you do. Uh, And that's what you want, because this is what St. Paul is ascribing about himself. So he says, because obviously St. Paul is one of the ones that they're idolizing as a Christian, right? But then he uses himself as an example. He says, I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. So you're full and rich in Christ. You have this inheritance. You have everything. And yet, in your interaction in the world, if you're going to be like me, like a, like a Christian, God will display you often last as one condemned to death. That's how St. Paul sees himself. And, and one of the notes on that is when he says, the apostles are seen in the world as being last, as men condemned to death. The image uh, is possible that came to mind of you know, a procession of an emperor entering into the city. You have the emperor first with all the heralds and the princes and everything. And last in the procession come the prisoners of war. In other words, the most, uh, the worst people, the people you don't want to be. That this is who God shows us to be in the world as the last, as men condemned to death. So even though we are, if we're with Christ, we have all these things, often in the world, we don't look that way. Um, Because the playing field is different than what the world wants us to look at. Uh, So we're condemned to death. We have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. So there's some irony here and sarcasm again happening that he's saying we are weak. Uh, We are weak in worldly terms, but you are strong, right? So he's, he's telling them, uh, don't glory in that worldly strength that you're told to glory about, right? Become foolish in the eyes of the world. Become weak or, or glory in the weakness. Uh, we are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished. We are dishonored. 
To the present hour we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. This is a very interesting passage describing the life of an apostle and by extension the life of what a Christian should be. That it's not this external uh, glory and honor. That the fact that they are honored and that they are strong and that they are wise is not to their credit, but he's making fun of them, if you will, right? He's saying, you're not. He's shaming them in a way. He's saying, you're uh, valuing and, and becoming strong and honored and all these things that the world possesses. And I am the opposite. I am dishonored. All the apostles are dishonored, uh, weak. We hunger and we thirst we're poorly clothed, beaten, and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands, which is a reference to St. Paul's profession as a tent maker. He would spend time and often raise his own money by making tents to earn money and then go be able to travel and preach the gospel. So the life of Paul was quite difficult, as you can see here. Um, he embraced a life of, of suffering of the cross. Um, and... What he gloried in was not these externals, but in Christ. And what he built up was not earthly treasure, but heavenly treasure. Because being, being defamed, we entreat. Uh, being persecuted, we endure. Being reviled, we bless. Those are the virtues. Those are the things to glory in, right? Being able to endure, uh, endure suffering, enduring persecution, of blessing in the middle of curses. Um, that's, that's the hard part of the gospel. Um, Christ said to love your enemies and all these things. It's the complete opposite of what we think of in the world. And he keeps going. We have become the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. So he's literally saying we are the, the bottom. We are a, a pile in the eyes of the world, a pile of junk, right? He's, he kind of gets extreme. You can see, you can see some of Paul's character. Um, that I, I hate to say it, but you, you wonder how literal this actually is. Like, did people actually think of him as that bad? <laughs> and that, you know, uh, but some people did, obviously. People locked him up. People beat him up, right? Uh, and this is what he's referring to there. So he... He gets, he gets passionate about things, as you can see. <laughs> uh, he, he, gets, he gets very passionate about it. Um, I don't know. Any, let me, let's stop there and see if there's any, any observations or, or questions on this kind of transition he made from you have everything, you have everything, and then reminding them it's in Christ, right? To, to prioritize that. And then often what we as apostles look like is pretty much the opposite of what you want to look like in, in life because our focus is on Christ. So I don't know, are there any questions or observations on, on Paul's self-deprecation here? I feel like it's really stabilizing to think of identity in terms of what he's saying, having it centered around Christ as opposed to the gifts that you've been given by Christ. Just because it... it 
just form such a stable basis. Like it's not going to change. But if you're forming your identity around the gifts, then you know that yeah. those might change, and then yeah. you're going to have to like it's a yeah. total like shift yeah. in your world. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. It's very comforting. Yeah. I don't disagree with that at all. But where I'm having a problem, and my brain's not working very good, but the gifts are given to you from God, and you're mm-hmm. supposed to use them to the glory of God. Mm-hmm. So then, how is that not part of your identity? Or, mm-hmm. or there's mm-hmm. a passage where I talk about, you know, not everybody has the same gifts, right? Some of you are supposed to be teachers, yeah. some of you are supposed to be the word. And mm-hmm. that is part of your identity. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if you're not if you don't want to focus on that part as being part of your identity and how and that was given to you from Christ then, mm-hmm. then how do you make your identity in Christ? I, I think that the, there's like the subtle difference and sometimes we we start by saying I mean to be honest with you like I, I think about this often because like as a priest you could say or like as an apostle you're given stewardship of, of great and wonderful things right? Um, the kind of grace of the priesthood of, or grace of being a Christian, right? The, the royal priesthood. That you're, you're given wonderful talents and things. And often we start thinking, I'm going to give glory to God, you know, by doing these things. And I'm so thankful that I have this. And I'm going to give glory to God with all this. But the fallen human nature often makes us see the, maybe the success of what we've done by God's grace and become proud and think, well, this must have been something that I did. I, like there's some, there becomes, we become associated with the thing rather than associating just with Christ. <laughs> we become proud in ourselves rather than giving the glory to God. And it's a very subtle thing. I mean, it's something that one has to fight with every day. It's like an everyday struggle of saying, no, these things are happening because of Christ. I'm simply like a steward of the gifts. Humility. Yeah, humility. Humility, I think. Humility. So I don't know that I... Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. but but so like, because I think you... Yeah, so I think it's good to be kind of... I mean, I'm not saying... I think it would be good to be proud of the wonderful things that God has given us to do, Right. But you have to say that God has given us because very quickly that last part falls off slowly, slowly, actually, I was maybe not quickly, but little by little it falls off and it becomes look at these great things. Not that God has enabled me to do, but that I must have done. (laughs) And it's just it's human. It's at the very core of of human nature, Um, you know. Mm-hmm. I feel like the, the whole question of identity is 
it seems to be a very recent thing in human history to kind mm -hmm. of consider yourself as this individual subject mm -hmm. who has these certain attributes that are like yours mm -hmm. or that belong to you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Saint Sophroni talks a lot in his writing about how we're supposed to kind of shed those things that make us in our minds the individual and the sort of mm -hmm. the individualizing psychology, mm -hmm. right? And to submit that to Christ and to, yeah. uh, he talks about the hypostatic prayer, right? Like praying as a human being for the entire creation. And, uh, and I think in that he's, his understanding is that your personhood, um, who you are is not so much about you as an individual, but mm -hmm. as one of the human family. Mm -hmm. And everyone is basically the same. Like everyone has the same human nature, right? We're not like these mm -hmm. individual things that just all happen to be this thing called human. Like we all actually partake in something that is called human nature, like actually, literally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just like a clever sort of... I think too, like, you know, it, while it's good to like, you know, at a certain, there's certain stages of it, I would say as well, that there's one stage of being thankful for the gifts that we have. Um, but I think that what the call is, is to even, like, as we become more and more grateful and recognize that more and more of what we have is not ours, but God's, we see, and at the same time, when we see our own tendency to uh, sin by making them our things, and, and you know, I, I think that the goal becomes to find an identity deeper than just those gifts because the gifts can change. So like for instance, I, I think that the very core of, of identity um, is if, if, if a person comes to the identity of that I am loved by God, I'm a child of God that's loved by God. If you, if you, if you have identity like that, if that's where your focus is and your identity, then you're, you're uh, in a good place, right? Then, then you're unshaken. Um, so, I don't know, just, just a, a thought on that. Exactly. I think St. Paul says Exactly. Uh, a lot of what we're talking about is Orthodox Christianity, which is so completely opposite of Western culture. Mm -hmm. And like so many of us, you know, living in, in the real world and in Western culture, we derive a lot of our identity from our job. Mm -hmm. And other people in the world don't do that. Mm -hmm. And pushing back on that, mm -hmm definition of our identity yeah. is really, really hard to do when it permeates everywhere we go and everything we do and everybody else that we talk to outside of mm -hmm. our little mm -hmm. orthodox mm -hmm. community. And it's really hard, I think, to not get sucked into that. And yeah. I, I'm not strong enough to push back. I derive like 110% of my identity by, by yeah. my job and what I do and, and that kind of thing and I hate it. I, I absolutely hate it and it's, it's just so hard to push back on that because it permeates our culture, mm -hmm. our, our American and, and Western culture to, to that. 
to that extent, and I'm not strong enough to, to stand up to that. Yeah. yeah, like what's the first question yeah. someone asks you when you're yeah. done? It's like, what do you do? What yeah. do you do? Instead of saying, like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, the St. Paul has a, the, I forget where it is in the epistles, but he says that you are dead and your lives are hidden in Christ, mm-hmm. right? Like your life, the foundation of your life as a Christian who has been baptized and chrismated is Christ Jesus. Yeah. It's not the things that you do or the, the thing, you know, your kind of external situation or circumstances. It's, and I mean, that's, I feel like that's a good, mm-hmm. you know, on the identity question, mm-hmm. that seems like a good, you know, his well, insight there. Because as a senior when I was ready to retire, a lot of people come up to you and say, well, what are you going to do when you stop working? <laughs> you know, you're yeah. like, your life is going to, you know, be totally over uh-huh. with. Right. And they, they say you're going to be so bored. And I, I haven't been bored yet. <laughs> and, and that's especially the case for men. Mm. Yeah, it's a, a very men. Gender, it's a very gendered type, mm. of, type of thing. But we, we face it, too. I mean, women right. do, too. But for the longest time, you know, like, my dad worked, and my mom didn't work until later on. And it was, it was. I mean, he went through a really hard time when he retired. Yeah. And I mean, we all, I think, but that that comes back to what I was saying that if we derive so much of our identity from our job, and all of a sudden mm. we don't have a job. Yeah. You know, I mean, then what, how do we? That was your question from last time. We're still working on it. <laughs> I feel like you could turn that around a little bit and um, kind of maybe work with what you're dealing with already by just asking yourself, um, well, why do I like my job? Because I know you do some really impactful things, and I feel like you can turn that around and say, well, I'm doing this for the people, which through that I'm doing it for Christ. And then when you stop working, you can, obviously you never really stop working, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah, this is an example. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, that, that meaning still transfers, so you're not um, kind of well, maybe, lost. Yeah. Maybe you don't, maybe you, you shouldn't be stopping. Nicole, this, this may, I, I, have a, I have a thought to share that may go back to what you said earlier. And based on what Lucy said, it reminded me that, that sometimes, like when we, well, our, in terms of our own identity and how we look at other people, we ask the question of like, what? Like, what do you do? You know, those kind of things, right? Instead of asking, Why? Um, and I think that's, that's part of it, is when we look at why we do things, we can test our heart. Because you can, you can, like, let's say you're applying your talents, right? But when you forget that it's God that gave you the talents, the why changes. And the why becomes it's for my glory that I'm doing this. Where it may have begun with, it's for the glory of God. Or, or some, I'm putting it in simple terms like that, but the asking the, like, why we do things... Uh, I think it's really interesting. So I'm glad you brought that up, Lucy. Well, I think when we're doing it for ourselves, we also have a lot more pressure to succeed. And that fear daily drives us harder to do more and more and more. So I think, you know, what you just said about, you know, doing it for the glory of God instead of, is this to please myself and mm-hmm. to be successful? 
you know, if I fail. Because I think that failure is just really horrible to us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it drives us to push more where it's not needed. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this fits, but uh, I think it was uh, Father DeYoung on a podcast said something about how much God loves us. He says, think of God as your yaya, and you're playing fish with your little grandchild. And the kid says, have you got a six? And he says, hmm, no, maybe ask if I've got a nine. And then the kid says, have you got a nine? And the guy puts it down. He says, Little prince. And then the kid is so excited. And he says, that's what God is like. He says, he's here to love you and you yeah. know, give you a chance. And I thought, that was so cute. That's really sweet. <laughs> because there that's are really days sweet. when I think, you know, yeah. does God love me? I, mean, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But then when you think of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, like I don't that. know if it fit. But yeah, I like I that. that yeah. <laughs> That's sweet. That's sweet. So, so Saint Paul, it's it's a challenging passage to read about how how uh, how tough his life is, <laughs> and yet how how joyful and energized he is in the middle of all these things. That's that's really incredible to ponder. You know, he's seen by many people as being crazy and poor and in rags and they beat him up he's homeless <laughs> he's persecuted he's reviled he's defamed and he's a bunch of trash <laughs> is what he's saying here yeah. is what he's saying he's about himself yeah. he's not selling it very well at all no no not at all because <laughs> it's like the worst sales pitch you could you could possibly have yeah yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and he, he goes, cause, and then he, afterwards, you know, to, to make it even worse and to emphasize what you're saying, actually, uh, it, I don't write these things to shame you, in other words, that you're so powerful and, and you see yourself so, but he's warning you. My beloved children, I warn you, though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And that's a very interesting passage. But then he says, therefore I urge you, imitate me. <laughs> There's the sales pitch. <laughs> like all these things, imitate me. <laughs> oh my goodness. So that, that's how it ends right there, if you will. Imit, imitate me in all of these uh, things. And there was that little verse beforehand, which is interesting, that we use in the church to talk about our own, the leaders of the church. You may have 10,000 10, instructors in Christ. You do not have many fathers. I have begotten you through the gospel. I am your father in Christ. And this is something that, you know, people outside the Orthodox Church, you know, Protestants, reading the gospels where the Lord says, call no man father on earth, right? And they say, why are you calling your priest father? Well, St. Paul is saying father. So obviously, you know, when, when Christ says calling someone your father on earth, this is not to be understood in that way. Uh, it's to be understood in the way of a father is somebody that you imitate and you're like. So you're not trying to be like someone on earth. You're trying to be like your heavenly father. That's your model is your heavenly father. 
But in terms of calling somebody father and seeing them as somebody that's uh, brought you into faith and, and recognizing that relationship by calling them father, uh, St. Paul is calling himself a father to them. Um, that's happy for you. <laughs> I know, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, do I need to go through the mud with my cassock a little bit? <laughs> Get a more beat up car? <laughs> All these things, right? You know, sometimes you look back at some of the non-Orthodox people that are doing God's work, so to speak. Yeah. Um, they do get to that point where they're just like in rags and yeah. barefoot. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And self, self-proclaiming that they are. But mm-hmm. are they really? Yeah, just because you're poor and in rags and preaching doesn't the gospel mean doesn't mean you're... Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah. That's true. So... Um, yeah, so that's that's the sales pitch for the day. <laughs> imitate, <laughs> imitate, imitate me. Um, and they're not. And that's and I mean, I guess just to finish the chapter there, you know, um, he's, he's telling him he's going to come to them, um, and um, you know that he hopes to find them in a place where they're imitating him, as he imitates Christ. That's, that's a main part of here. And, and these themes keep coming back again. For instance, in, in a little while, he's going to touch on this theme of, you know, the sales pitch. He's going to make the pitch again, if you will, to use that term. And talking about finding strength and weakness. That he will say, God forbid that I should boast in anything except for the cross of Christ. That I should, God forbid I should boast except for in my weaknesses. Those are the only things that um, I use as my identity is kind of what he will say later, is that my only identity is in my weaknesses and in Christ, right? And, I, and so, you know, I, there was, uh, I asked a priest recently if he would preach in our church. And he had this, he's a very holy priest, and he said, um, I, he said, what do you want me to preach about, the priest said. I said, whatever's in your heart. And you know what he said? Very genuinely. I don't think he was even joking. This is how humble he was and how much like St. Paul he was. He said, oh, there's just evil and corruption in my heart. But I'll read the scriptures and find something. (laughs) Just very nonchalantly. Yeah. That was his identity in a way was I am a sinner. I I am nothing except when Christ fills me. Then I am everything. So I'm either, I'm nothing and I'm everything at the same time. I'm weak and I'm strong at the same time. And that's, that's kind of what Paul is, is going towards, is this fusion of absolute weakness and absolute strength of God. And the more we're weak, the more God is strong in us, right? And that's, that's, the, that's a really interesting thing to think about, right? So become weak. Become foolish, is what he's saying. And God will then be able to work through you. So, all right. Well, let's end there for the day. Through the prayers of St. Paul and all the saints, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen.